Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Welcome to The Disruptive Entrepreneur. And I am with the marvelous Marissa Peer. Marissa, thank you so much for taking the time to do this uh, conversation, interview. Really grateful to you. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, Marissa, you do a guided orgasm meditation for women. I must admit, I need to know more about this. <laughs> I know, not just for women. Well, that was a sort of, you know, so many of the great things in my life have come about almost by mistake. And many, many years ago, I thought I could never have a baby. And even if I could get pregnant, I couldn't possibly carry a baby to full term. And then I discovered that I could get pregnant. And then they said, well, the baby will, will have everything wrong with it. It's going to be very underweight. And she was born completely normal, about eight pounds. And so I began to help other women who couldn't conceive. And then I discovered something really interesting, that when a woman has sex with a new person, well, actually, when a man has sex with a stranger or somebody new, he triples his sperm outtake. And when women have sex with a stranger, their whole cervix tilts to attract sperm because just like in the animal kingdom, nature wants us to spread our seed, I guess is a good way of saying it. So I was helping a lot of women whose husbands have a low sperm. I said, look, I know this sounds crazy, but if you fantasize and get your husband to dress up as the pool guy or a pilot and don't speak, you can make double the sperm, triple the sperm. You don't need to have it seal. And it, it was incredibly successful. But I was having a lot of women, oh, this is why I'm not orgasm. You know, it's so stressful. I'm trying to get pregnant by rote. There's no joy in it. It's like, okay, it's my time. Come on, let's do it. And now I can't orgasm. So I was helping women orgasm because it made them more fertile. And word got around. People said, what, can I just do the orgasm? I don't want the baby, but can you just hypnotize me to be super orgasmic? And then I began to work for a breast cancer charity. And of course, in discovering, in researching orgasms, one of the things I found out was that orgasms help you produce natural killer cells that fight cancer. They also fight aging and also fight depression because nature obviously thinks, you know, if you're having a lot of sex, you must be making a baby and it wants to keep you fairly healthy and alive, obviously, to raise that baby. So when I was at one of these cancer charities, one of the doctors said, I'm so glad you tell all these women to orgasm because we couldn't possibly say that. But it's very good that you're here telling them that it helps them survive because it's such a, such a life-affirming thing to do. So for women especially, there's a huge amount of benefits from orgasm. You make oxytocin, the bonding hormone, make cells that fight aging fight illness, you actually fight depression. Depression. So it was just a side on of what I did, but it, it seemed to cause a lot of pleasure. And um, my mission is to make people feel happy, and that certainly makes people feel happy, so I was very happy to do it. Wow, what a story. Uh, so I help entrepreneurs start and scale their businesses, and we have over 850,000 entrepreneurs that watch this channel every month. 
So are we saying if they had a more healthy sex life, they're probably going to be less stressed, maybe more focused, more healthy, have a, a longer duration as an entrepreneur, or am I being a bit tenuous there? No, I, I would say without a shadow of a doubt, if you have a healthy sex life, then you know, sex is so life affirming. It also changes your brain chemistry. You know, orgasms are extraordinary for women and men. And so I would say that's absolutely true. If you can have orgasms, male and female, it's very important. But it's not just the sex itself. It's what is that? It's a bonding, something so mystical and special and magical. It, it gives you energy, makes you feel good. And it makes you live longer. In all the blue zones where they study people who are living to 102, 105, one of the things they have is regular sex, even in their 80s and 90s. And so, again, studies show that sex has got, it's, it's got so much more to do for you than get you pregnant. It's actually a release of stress, makes you feel good, and it's certainly worth doing a lot. Noted. <laughs> So why did you become a therapist, Marissa? Obviously, you're very well known um, and, you know, you're in the top conversations of all sort of celebrity therapists. I think you even um, have been voted as Britain's best therapist. Take us back to why you became one and how your life moved you there and then how it became a success for you. So I always think we have these great plans. Think, I'm going over there and the world goes, no, you're going to go over there and around there and eventually you'll end up there. So I wanted to be a child psychologist. I thought that would be a great job, especially because I was already told then I could never have children. So I thought, oh, this would be a great job. If I can't have children, I help other people's children. But then as I began to look into that and I started off a teacher training college in Newcastle, I realized actually it is a great job if you're older Maybe at 22, it wasn't ideal because you tend to be working with very damaged children, often with parents or not on the same page at all. And I just realized I was too young for that. It wasn't for me at that time. And so I left Newcastle and ended up in L.A. teaching aerobics for Jane Fonda, which I have to say was a thousand times more fun. And I loved her and I loved working for her. She's quite a woman. But I'd already began um, learning psychology and so I was fascinated by the fact that in my her workhouse unit on Robertson Boulevard every third woman and this was in 1984 every third woman was bulimic anorexic body dysmorphic or exercise compulsive and, and several guys too I remember thinking you know this is a mental illness people are trying to treat this with diet and exercise it's so bizarre that they don't understand that it's not a physical thing it's as a mental illness and at the time, I shared an apartment in West Hollywood. One of my roommates completely believing the other was anorexic. One would eat one frozen grape an hour. The other would cry hysterically while eating a whole cheesecake that was still semi-frozen. And it was sad, but also fascinating. And I was very lucky. I met this amazing guy called Gil Boyne, who was a hypnotist. And I thought, oh, if I trained with him and learned hypnosis, I could cure my flatmates. I could still work for Jane Fonda and just pick all these people out of my classes and fix them. And that's what I did. And so I was stu studying hypnosis in the evening at weekends. It, it wasn't a long course, uh, teaching for Jane. And all of a sudden, I had this two simultaneous careers going on. But then what happened is people would ring up and go, hey, are you that girl? My neighbor's daughter's not anorexic, or they lost 20 pounds. I happen to have a fear of these or lifts or 
people or something bizarre, birds, and I only want to see you. So then I found that even more interesting that I stopped specializing and started people for everything. And it was truly just such a fascinating career. To this day, I mean, I've been doing it now for 33, maybe 34 years, and it has never bored me for a second. It's so amazingly interesting. Clients come along and they tell me the story. They show me their story. They like, here's my movie. I was abused. I was abandoned. I think I'm stupid. I'm a compulsive eater. And I always think, what an honor it is, because I get to change the ending of their story every single time. Some of us make it almost Oscar-worthy. So it's very exciting. I love it. Marissa, about 18 months ago, um, on the outside, you'd, you'd probably said looking in that um, we were having our best year in business. We were making our most amount of money. We had a training company that become the biggest in the UK. We were doing well, a good eight figure a year turnover. Um, it, was, it looked on the outside like we couldn't put a foot wrong. My business partner was developing a 140 odd units for us in our property portfolio and these were big projects and he was doing great and I felt the worst I'd probably felt in my life I felt lonely I felt un, un misunderstood I felt like everyone came to me for their problems but I didn't really know where to go myself even though I'd had coaches and mentors for probably 15 years there was distance growing between me and my wife and my family. Um, and for the first time in my whole life, I um, hired a therapist. And I did it on a practical level. I didn't do it because I thought I was suicidal or depressed because I knew I had a good life. But I thought, well, I've never tried a therapist. I've had a coach, a mentor. I've done courses, loads of them, all the personal development ones you can think of. But I've never actually tried a therapist. So I did a little beauty parade. I sort of tried four or five as a proper businessman, not like, I'll test you, see what you like, test you, see what you like. Anyway, I found a therapist called Sharon. And it was an amazing experience for me. And I, I've never been able to go so deep and reveal some of my baggage and the things I've been holding to. I realized that most of my problems were about when I was a young child and things I was perceiving as opposed to how things were. And it was a great experience. And I had therapy for a year. So have you worked with entrepreneurs? And have you helped disruptive, workaholic, um, very busy people? And if you have, could you give us a few tips on how you've helped them sort yeah. out? Sorry, it was so, a long Question. No, no. I mean, yeah, I, one of my very first clients was quite an amazing guy, very famous film director. You wouldn't know him because there's a lot of them in Hollywood. He came into my office and said, you know, I'm suicidally depressed and I just don't know what to do with myself and I'm a bad person. And I didn't really understand that because I've seen lots of his films and I was in awe of him. And he said, no, no, if you knew my life, you wouldn't like me. I said, well, tell me. Tell me everything. I said, honestly, I've heard everything in this office. There's nothing you could say that would shock me. So he said, well, when I was a kid, I used to, my parents, they weren't very kind. They used to put me out of the house every morning at 9 o'clock. And I wasn't allowed to come back till 7 o'clock, even in the winter. And I was only about 7 at night. So I would sneak into the back of the cinema, sit at the back row, and lo and behold, this old man would come and sit next to me and buy me popcorn and stroke my leg. And 
kind of groomed him and event and and he would go back every week knowing that this guy was going to give him sweets but also knowing that he was going to touch him and make him touch him back and that went on for probably at least a year and you see it's never what happens it's how the client perceives it it's not the event it's the meaning and he said you see i'm such a bad person i said oh no you know if you were a starving kid and you stole a bread roll go well you know the kid's starving i was actually having to be in tesco one day and this poor little kid was wandering around as pale as it goes and it was very clear that she was just trying to get food off the shelves and so i gave her some probably i said this is good you, know, you really need to get that little kid help she's obviously just wandering around her after school in the rain with no food no money and it was just so terribly sad so i told him the story and said but you were starved of love just that that little girl was starved of food and was stealing it because she had to get it from somewhere you were starved of affection and in some ways what you did was i mean it wasn't shaming it was almost like kind of showed a great sense of working stuff out for yourself you could have been in much more danger you're in a warm cinema not to minimize at all that he was being groomed and abused that was awful but I mean, awful things are always going to happen to kids that are stuck out in the street all day long. But with him, it was it was the perception that he was so bad that he'd gone back for more, that he'd allowed this to happen. Because, of course, for most kids that get abused, abusers say, well, you want it, you like it, you keep coming back, it's your fault, you're so attractive. And I find all my clients teach me as much as I ever teach them because – the scales kind of dropped from his eyes. They said, you're not a bad person. Something bad was done to you. You're as innocent now as you were when you were five. You're an innocent person and somebody did something bad to you and you've coped with it because you're very resilient and now you just have to let go of the shame and accept all your awards and not have this voice that says, but if you knew about me. So I said, I know all about you and I'm not judging you. I think you had an incredible fortitude to like cope with that and deal with that and find a very strange, unhealthy, obviously horrible resolution to being left on your own all day long in the street in the winter. And so that's often what happens with very successful people. They, they look at their past and go, yes, but, you know, I stole some candy when I was a kid. I, I cheated in my exams. My mother's husband used to look at me funny. And they have this terrible guilt and you know, there's all kind of survivor's guilt and all kinds of, you know, my mom wanted a boy and I was the third girl. She wanted a girl. I was the fourth boy. My dad left when I was two. Therefore, I'm not lovable. My mom's new husband likes her and their new child more than me. And it all comes down to the same thing. I'm not enough because when I was a kid, my needs weren't met. And kids don't have many needs. Their need is I want to feel safe. I want to feel loved. I want to feel significant. I want to feel that you're proud of me and I want to feel that I matter. And when those needs are not met and they so often are not met, what happens with a child is they never stop loving the parent. They stop loving themselves. Then they form a belief, these needs are never going to get met. Never, ever. And even though they often become rich and famous, they still have this belief inside. I still feel like that insignificant kid. I've faked all of this. I've pulled it all off, or I've got everything, but I still feel unlovable. I still feel this not enoughness. And so the more successful people are, the more they often feel that because it all begins to feel a bit like a fake. Well, I was a little kid who felt worthless, and now I, I thought, well, I've become famous and rich and successful, and then I'll feel amazing. And then they go, oh, but I still feel the same. But before I had a dream, I'm going to – 
be this and do that, then it will all be okay. Now I've been there, done that, it's all not okay. And now I don't know where to go. And that's when often drugs come in and really destructive behavior because there's nothing left because they thought the dream would make it better. You know, you can look at Amy Winehouse, Michael Hutchins, Heath Ledger, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, all those people with a dream to get everyone to love them. But they forgot the biggest bit of the dream. You really better love yourself too because if you can't deeply love who you are, with all your flaws, then it's just not going to mean anything. So how do entrepreneurs get out of this cycle of never-ending busyness and the never-ending chase and it never being enough? Well, that's the not in. You see, that's so interesting because I found very early in my career that all my clients, whether they're a movie star, an entrepreneur, or somebody who ran a children's school or a bakery indeed, they all had the same thing, which is this not enoughness. I'm not enough. So if you start from I'm not enough, then what do you need? Well, you need more. Might be more cakes, more alcohol, more medication, more drugs, more sex, more shopping, more shoplifting, more awards, more praise. But when you constantly need more of something, you have to peel it back to what, what's causing that. Well, it's the not enoughness. And many successful people build a company, sell it, go, that's good. And then they build another one. They, they do up a house and go, never again. And a year later, they're, they're doing another one. So they just can't stop with this because you can't fix the not enoughness with more. You know, I've worked with thousands and thousands and thousands of drug addicts, and every single one said the same thing, I'm not enough. Same thing with alcoholics. But also it's very much the same thing when you're working with people who are driven to succeed and really need the affirmation and the praise and the recognition and the awards and the big balance, and they still need more. And actually one of my very early clients who was a very successful actor taught me that because he had everything going wrong with him. He was a drug addict. He was so competitive. He'd been married four times. Each marriage was a disaster. He had all the trappings. He was unhappy. And I said to him, you know, you just don't think you're enough, do you? And big tears leaked out of his eyes. I said, do you think that's true? I said, you know it's true. I mean, how many people live your life with all these awards, four ex-wives, all the cars? And later on, he called me and said, you never believe it. He said, I've, I've sold my Porsche. I've got a Mini. I'm going fishing. I've got a girlfriend who's ahead. Said, I've never understood before that that was it because I made him write it all over his house on lipstick, having four ex-wives. One thing is there's a lot of makeup in his house. So mm-hmm. we could write I'm enough on all his mirrors, and I made him say it. But it's not enough. You've got to say it, state it, put it on your ringtone because – When you think you're not enough, that affects your entire life. I'm not enough, so I need more. When I get more, I still need more. So somebody might say to someone, hey, what a great business you've got. And we go, yeah, I know, but I need more. I need it to be even bigger. I need world domination. First, I had dominated my country. But but it's you've entered a race, and there's no finishing line ever because as you get to it, it moves. And it isn't that you have to come out of the race, but you have to – cure the I'm not enoughness. In his case, it all stemmed from being born in a trailer park and having a mum who worked nights and a dad who was in construction who who couldn't work every time it snowed, so he was full of anger. And all children think, well, my mum's at work, she's always at work. And then they have a conclusion, because she likes work more than me. 
my dad's never here. My dad's always away because, well, they like work more than me. Because, again, it's too scary for a child to work out the parents are lacking. That's terrifying. We have to idealize our parents in order to do it. It's our fault. My dad's angry because I'm not enough. My mom's always crying because I'm not enough. My dad left because I'm not enough. And so you have to fix it at source. And, and for him, just getting him to say I'm enough every day, I think he lost like 40 pounds. His whole life changed on a dime. And he spent a long time in rehab. And it sounds almost too good to be true, but its strength is in its honesty. No baby says, I'm not enough. I haven't got any hair. I've got these triple knees. I keep, you know, vomiting up food and can't even get my eyes to move in coordination. They they know they're enough. And, and so really all you have to do is reactivate and re-manifest, regenerate what you are born with, a certainty that you're enough. And when you know you're enough, it changes everything. It allows other people to know it too. And it's not about changing your weight, your shape, your size, getting a different car, having a six-pack. It's not about having all the trappings, getting custom-made suits or custom-made shoes or having this gorgeous supermodel on your arm. It's about knowing that you are enough. And when you know it, everyone else kind of knows it too. But even if they don't, it doesn't matter. It changes your life. And I'm sure you got a lot of that from your own therapist. You know, making peace with who you are and knowing, look, I'm a flawed person. I'm always going to be flawed. And I'm having a relationship with flawed people. And the best we can be is flawed people having flawed relationships. And that's so much better than, hey, I'm going to be perfect and have a perfect relationship with a perfect person because it, it just is not even, not even remotely possible. How do you unlock your ultimate self-confidence? Well, that's a great question. You know, what does confidence even mean? Because we'll say, I'm really confident at work, but I can't talk to people in a bar. Or I'm really confident at home with my partner, but I, I, I can't talk to my boss at work. So there are levels of confidence. Confidence in what I do, confidence in who I am. I remember talking to one of my clients who was a pioneer in IVF and an amazing guy, but couldn't talk to people, couldn't even have a relationship with women because... He was so caught up in, he could talk about biology, but, and he had a lot of confidence in, in hospital, but that was it. So there's all different kinds of confidence, but to make it easy, confidence really comes down to, do you like yourself? Do you really like yourself? Can you hold your head up and go, hey, I'm me. I'm not good at everything, but I've got some qualities and I'm a nice person and I'm worth being around. And it's great when you can say, but I also happen to be amazing at IT or I'm a phenomenal chef or God, I'm an amazing parent. But that isn't really, that's confidence in what you can do. Real confidence is, do you like yourself? Do you go to bed every night and wake up in the morning liking who you are? Because if you haven't got that, you haven't got very much. And I think what happens, well, I see what happens is we have all these kids in school and they try to make them good at everything. And, and I was recently getting a talk and this guy said to me, hey, could you, how can I make my kid be good at everything? I said, are you? He said, what? I said, good at everything. He said, no. I said, well, don't even bother them because why could you ask your kid to be good at everything when you're not? That's really incredibly weird that you would even think that was normal. You're supposed to be 
not a jack of all trades and master of mine. Supposed to be good at something. And I think many schools try to make kids good at sport and science and maths and drama and art. And and so many of them know know what they're not good at. And I love the fact that in Finland now. You only go to the lessons you like. And my father was quite a revolutionary head teacher, and he did that. He says, no point in going to a lesson you hate. You don't have to do that because go to what you're good at. Go follow your skill set. And um, I think schools do a lot of damage. Because, you know, they, they stream you, and so you're in the lower stream. This, the kid that gets the prize every year is never the one that's worked hard. It's the one that's naturally gifted. You should reward effort not achievement but we don't do that we keep rewarding achievements so we reward the people who are naturally gifted find it easy and make all the other things i'll never get there and then that then you get what's called learned helplessness what's the point no matter how hard i try nobody recognizes me i might as well just give up marissa i saw a tweet of yours recently and i'm going to quote it because it's quite a long tweet how often do you find yourself rehashing past conversations, dwelling on your choices, or getting trapped in a never-ending tunnel of what-if scenarios? And I thought, that's a fascinating question I'd love to ask Marissa. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, a lot of us get into bed at night, and then we start to go over, I could have done this. Is that what I call it? I could have, would have, should have. I should have said that. I should have done this. I should have got up earlier, gone for it. I should have, you know, had all these healthy smoothies ready, but instead I was eating cake. I should have prepared um, the talk, and instead I'm winging it. I should have spent more. I should have studied more. And maybe you should have, but, you know, in the Bible it says, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And it, and it also says somewhere, so one of the, I mean, I read all the religious tomes because it's so interesting, the Quran and the Torah, a lot of therapy going on in there. In fact, in the Quran and Torah, they both say when you change one person's life, it's the same as changing the life of the whole world. But they will say the same thing. It's okay to make a mistake. Napoleon said a man who never made a mistake never made anything. But what's not okay is to beat yourself up, to make yourself want to do that I should have, could have, would have. You know, I remember many years ago, I just actually had my baby. I was going to be interviewed in a television show, and that was in the days of cassettes. And I'd, I'd kind of record what I wanted to say, and I put it in my car, and my car rewound it. And then it played the radio while it was rewinding, and I completely forgot. And I arrived at the venue and thought, oh, my God, I didn't listen to any of that. But I thought, you know what? I'm obviously not meant to listen to it. It's all in my head. I can do it without it. And that's better for me because then I can decide I don't need to prepare. And I mean, I do prepare. A couple of, about two years ago, I was giving some talks. I was so tired. And they said, can you do one more? And I'm like, oh, no. I said, okay, one more. I thought, you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even care about this talk. I'm not preparing. I don't really want to do it. I just flown in from America to Croatia and I'd given a talk every day and they were all at like eight in the morning. And I just went out there thinking, it's not that I didn't care, but I didn't care. And it was one of the best talks I ever did. I thought, well, that's great. I did no preparation, nothing. I just did it. And that was interesting for me that it actually was so good and I didn't even prepare. So I don't know what that tells you. Well, I do know it says that sometimes you just have to be yourself, you know, all the preparing, all the preening and 
getting ready. And it, it's just so nice when you can show up as you and people say, well, I like you. I like you so much more without that makeup. And, oh, I like it when you're in tears because that's the real you. I love that little bit of fat around your middle. That's my favorite part of you. And actually what we do love about people is their funny little foibles. And it's such a shame they're all trying to be perfect. I've got to snip something off or inject something in just to go out in the world and feel acceptable. And, you know, we have that whole thing for women, not so much, you know, you've got to have um, is it fat hair and thin thighs. When you've got fat thighs and thin hair, you might think, well, I don't count. And that's just so not true. So that thing was about stop worrying about what you didn't do and just relax and be yourself because that's the best and the flawed person. Having flawed relations with the flawed people, you know, my husband's flawed, I'm flawed. My kids flawed. We have flawed relationships. It's such a relief that we don't have to pretend to be the perfect person. It's so nice when you can just be yourself. And I think that's what success and confidence is. Many people say, you know, some people don't want to strive for excellence, but it's great if you do, and it's great if you get it, but you still have to go home and be yourself and sometimes just get off that hamster wheel of always trying to get more awards or more money or a bigger house or, you know, we're always upgrading everything. Marissa, let's be honest, you're pretty much a celebrity in your world and you've developed a really strong personal brand. Now, I know Lewis Howes and I think that your um, interview with him was massive. So could you tell us how you've managed to build this vast personal brand and the impact of doing things like that interview with Lewis for your business? You know, it's a really funny question. You asked about 15 years ago, I was on a TV show called Celebrity Fit Club working with overweight celebrities. There was me, there was a doctor, and there was a trainer. And the doctor was very kind of intimidating. This is not the English brother. He was great, but the American doctor. And his diet was so crazy. It was all about, you know, low fat and carbs. And I kept saying to him, that's such a stupid diet. Carbs are full of sugar. He's like, no, I'm a doctor. I know everything. And at the end of that, I really regretted not saying to him on camera, your diet is absolutely crazy. It's 30 years out of date. doesn't know one of these people aren't losing weight because bread is cake, rice is cake, pasta is cake. There's, it turns to sugar. You need fat. And he was this old-fashioned low-fat. But he did me a great favor because I realized that I should never be scared of what people think, never be scared to say that doesn't work, that's out of date, that's ridiculous. That's incorrect. And I think it was when I had the courage to say, you know, why do people have to go to therapy for 10 years and build up a relationship? And I hear what you say about your therapist, and I totally get that. But I also think that many people just keep going and going and going for years and years, and no one goes to the emergency and goes, hey, I've broken my leg. Can we build up trust before you can fix it? Now I guess it is, hey, I've got I'm in terrible pain here, but I know we've got to spend ages building up trust before you can make me better. And so I, I decided to just talk about that and to talk about the things that I feel are important. And I know as I, when I was on Lewis's show, I was at, he asked me my favorite um, saying, and it's one from um, an amazing psychiatrist called Dr. Morsey, says the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears will cause other organs to weep. And I've always thought, wow, that's just so profound that we're so busy treating people's organs that we forget to treat their feelings. So I have been very lucky that I started off as a therapist, but I've always been really unconventional. 
And then when I was training, my teacher said, you know, if someone comes in as my husband hits me, you must never go, oh, you must never judge them. And I thought that's completely stupid. So when people come in and say, my husband hits, okay, he doesn't love you. What do you mean? I said, if he hits you, he doesn't love you. Why are you with someone that's thinking, well, he can't help it? I said, but you can. You have to leave. Oh, I love him. I said, no, you don't love him. You just think you love him. You can't love someone that beats you up in front of your children. And by the way, you, you do know that your children are going to go out and pick someone just like him because you're allowing that to happen. So I would be very straight with it in a nice, loving way. But I just say, look, come on. This is not love. This is abuse. And when you tell clients the truth, they go, you know, the only person who told me that, oh, and I went home and thought about it. So I think it's, you have to be unconventional and brave to build your own brand. You have to be prepared to have a message that some people don't like and will really call you out on. But I think if you know that you're doing good stuff with a good heart, then I think it's okay. I think you can go out there and just have to be true to yourself, I guess. Not be scared of, oh, should I say that? They won't like that. Should I really say that when a therapist says, and how do you feel today, they really don't even know what to do with you. Or they wouldn't ask you that because clients don't even know how they feel. How do I feel? I've been coming here for six years. I'm fed up with coming here for six years to talk about how I feel. I'd like to get better now. So I think you have to be a bit a bit prepared to, to think outside the box. And, and my form of therapy is very unconventional. You know, I, I was teaching a class recently. I had this very sweet Indian lady up on stage with a weight problem. And, um, and she said, you know, every day I cook all this food for my boyfriend. He never comes around. And for my son, he's out. And, and she said, I cook this food so I can feel loved. And I said, well, who do you think has to love you? She said, my boyfriend. I said, no. She said, my husband. I said, no. She went, me. I said, yes. I said, well, I can't believe you said that to her. I said, but what was wrong with that? She needed to know that she was looking for love in all the wrong places, that she had to love herself enough to stop saying, please love me, please love me, and say, hey, I love me. I'm actually not cooking anymore. If you're here, I might cook for you, but I'm getting on with my life now, and I'm going to love myself. So I've been very lucky that um, I did a great show with Lewis and I interviewed him on my show last week. But I think you just have to be honest about what you believe and what you see. You know, obviously make allowance for other people, you just tell people the truth. And it's so funny that when I look at the comments on that show, every person says, oh, I love something different. Like one person loved it when I was saying your feelings are the most real thing you have. You can't Netflix them or eat them or drink them or smoke them. You have to feel the feeling until it no longer requires to be felt. And that's so contradictory because in psychiatry, it's like, oh, don't feel the feeling. Let's medicate it. Let's give you drugs. And one of my clients said, you know, I couldn't have sex with my husband. I was so depressed. I went to the doctor. He gave me Prozac. I still can't have sex with him. You know what? I don't care. I'm completely numb now. And it's like, well, what is the point of that? You haven't solved her problems. She can't have sex with her husband because she's depressed. You just made her feel nothing. And so I'm really about let's find the feeling and treat that. It's I call it what lies beneath because in the same way if you go to the doctor, go, you know, I've got a pain in my knee, they go, your hip's out. I've got a pain in my head, they go, your back's out. So the source of the pain is often not obvious. And when people come into me and say, I've got, you know, 
uh, eczema or dermatitis or depression or anxiety, that's a symptom. It's not the problem. The problem is that they feel so bad about themselves or they're so scared of failing or they have um, performance anxiety. And so when you then get migraines or eczema, you don't have to perform anymore. It's like, okay, job done. And it's very important to always look at, you know, what's really going on here. I never say when I work with troubled kids, why are you doing that? I say, what happened to you? And they go, oh, well, you know, my granddad started touching me when I was 11. And then I got really fat. And I never told my mom. And here I am now, a complete mess. But you can't say what's wrong with you. You have to go, what, what's happened to you? What went on in your life? What was going on when this began? And people will tell you all kinds of stuff. If they really know that you're not judging them and your agenda is to help them get better. And so... I love that, that clients will reveal everything to me because they feel safe and they just it's just like going to the emergency room. We want to get over their pain as fast as they can. Thank you. Uh, why do nice people finish last? Because they try to make everybody like them. They try, they put everyone in. You see, there's, it's a bit like if this, let me use this pen. So if this was a little seesaw, so here's the belief. That, that's an arrogant person, show-off, selfish, and they're up there. And then here's the martyr person who puts themselves last and they're down there. And they've forgotten in the middle is something called honouring yourself. So, of course, you don't want to be a martyr. You don't want to be a martyr, putting everyone um, uh, above you. But you also don't want to be the ruthless person that puts himself above everyone else. You need to be right in the middle. You need to honour yourself. And, you know, there's a great story I love about somebody who went to hell. And they said, I went to hell and they had all this amazing food on the table. It was incredible. But they had these six-foot chopsticks and nobody could eat anything because the chopsticks were too long. Then I went to heaven at exactly the same. But we were feeding each other, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> some fluff them across the table. <coughs> so that was quite a nice metaphor because you're meeting someone, but they're feeding you back. and so. Nice people put everyone else's needs first. I'll lend you my money. I'll lend you my car. I'll drive out of my way to give you a lift to work. I'll never say no. You say something mean to me, and I just kind of laugh, and I'll get bullied, but I'll put myself last because they're scared of putting themselves first because you think people who put themselves first are ruthless, and there's that expression. It's very lonely at the top. It's not lonely at the top. It's very crowded at the bottom. You don't have to be at the top. You can be amongst the best, almost the best. But I think we teach people all these crazy things. Rich people are ruthless. Rich people sell their soul to the devil, blah, blah, blah. Look at the person showing off. Who do they think they are? What we're saying is don't draw attention to yourself. You know, do for others. Now, in the Bible, it says um, love your neighbor as you love yourself, not more than. It says, as you love yourself. That means treat them with the same respect you would treat you. It means, sure, if you're making um, a cake, maybe take one over, but don't give them the whole cake and leave you with nothing. Don't say, well, I've made this lovely food. Why don't you have it all? So if you're nice to other people at your expense, it doesn't work because people will push you as far as you allow you to be pushed. And when you can say, you know what, no. And I find that many of my clients say, so I'm so sorry I'm late. No, don't say that. Say thank you so much. I'm so sorry. 
you seem really unhappy. What's wrong? What have I done wrong? What have I done to upset you? You mustn't do that. You can say, thank you for waiting. I really appreciate that you waited on me. Thanks. You know, seem a little out of sorts today. Can I do anything to help you? Do you want to be left alone? Do you want to talk? But don't go through life saying, sorry, sorry you're cross. I'm sorry I'm late. I'm sorry I messed it up. Because apologizing for yourself over and over again just doesn't reach when they go, sorry, not sorry either, because that's not right. But you need to honor yourself, respect yourself, and love other people as you love yourself. Share your stuff. But it's like that thing on the plane. You've got to put your own mask on first, otherwise you're no good to anyone. I'm really enjoying this so far. And I thought I'd do something a bit different, Marissa. So we've never done this on any of our 630 episodes before. We normally finish with five of the same quick fire questions, but we actually have two, four, six, eight, 14 quick fire ones for you. Okay. So you be, feel free to answer in a sentence or however you want, but they're designed to be more quick fire. Okay. Um, and also, because you know they're quick fire, it means if when we need to finish, um, you know, so you know we're coming towards the end. So what's the number one habit of successful people? They do what they don't want to do and they do it first. They do what they actually dislike to get to where they want to be and they always do it first. How do you sell anything to anyone? Well, anything you buy, you buy something because of the way it makes you feel. And if you remember that, people buy what makes them feel good. If you have a product that makes people feel good, they will buy it. So whatever you're selling, make sure it makes people feel good and they'll pay for it. Um, how do you feel about money? What's your mindset around money? Well, you know, I love Tony Hanks. I've been rich and I've been poor and I've been depressed. And I can tell you being depressed with money is a lot better than being depressed with no money. I like that. I think people get money very wrong. They go, well, you know, you've got so much money and spiritual people shouldn't ask for money. And if you're a good person, good person shouldn't ask for money. And I always go, look, if you can do good things with money, if you want money and sit down and work out what will you do with it, how many people will benefit from you having it? And if the answer is a lot, then go out and make it. But money is a form of energy. I, I think people get very confused. Like, I, I'm going to be rich. I, I'm manifesting wealth. But you have to give it, but what are you going to do to make this wealth? You have to ask a few questions. Do you want to be wealthy? Well, the first thing is you better decide you're worth it. Because if you don't think you're worth it, you'll get rid of it all. 70% of lottery winners are dead broke, bankrupt in three years. So first of all, convince yourself you're worth it. Decide who will benefit from it. And then you've got to work really hard. This whole thing about the secret, I just manifest it. It doesn't work. You have to work hard, put in the hours. I mean, I love what I do. I feel like I've never worked a day in my life. But actually, I do work hard. I happen to really like it. But you have to believe you're worth it and work for it and do good with it. And if you do all those three things, you're going to attract a lot of money. The controversial, the polarizing Jordan Peterson. What do you think about him and his epic rise to fame? Well, I think he worked very. I think you, you talk about the athlete Jordan Peterson. No, the intellect. The he wrote tw the Twelve Rules for Life. Oh, sorry, I'm thinking about someone else. 
Well, I think he, the 12 rules for life, you know, whenever people can relate to what you've written, when they can relate to it, because people like 10, there's 10 steps of the 12 rules. And when they can, if you make rising that people can understand and apply and you speak their language, you, you deserve to be successful. And I think people like that. I think a lot of writers write what they want to write. And you have to write what people want to read. And if you write what people want to read and give them handy hints that are easy to break down, then you'll do really well. What's the weirdest therapy session you've ever done or what happened in it that was the weirdest thing you've seen? So when I was a therapist on television, they used to ask me to do all kinds of weird things. Can you put on a bikini and do therapy in a jacuzzi? I'm like, have you ever known a therapist to do that? No. Can you put on a little nightie and go and do therapy in this client's bedroom while we film it? I'm like, no. No therapist turns up in a, in a little negligee and does therapy. No therapist does it in a jacuzzi. So I've been asked to do many weird things. And I'm, one show I was on, they said, okay, could you humiliate all the services and make them cry? make them really cry at such good television. I'm like, but it, that's not therapy. Therapy's not about humiliating. It's about making them feel better. So I eventually decided to stop working as a therapist on television because they would always ask me to show people up, humiliate and shame them and have them in tears. And it's like, no. So that's probably the weirdest thing. In the name of entertainment, I've been asked a lot to really upset my clients. But I've always said, no, I, I'd rather leave the show, frankly. And um, I'm glad I had I was able to say no to that because it's so wrong. Is there something that you used to believe, maybe quite strongly, but you've changed your mind about? Yeah, I think I used to believe that success was down to hard work. And now I realize that 80 percent of success is down to mindset, that mindset of I can do this. I'm skilled at this. I, I can do this. It's got my name all over it. Still hard work. but. You know, I, I made up a little saying, and I really like it, and it gets quoted a lot, which is lovely for me because I love quoting other people, but it says, belief without talent will take you further than talent without belief. But if you have both, you can be unstoppable. But it really is true. You can have all the talent in the world without belief. It's nothing, but you can have no talent. We see that on shows like X Factor. And yet you can have phenomenal self-belief, and you can make it in the world. So... The belief is actually more important than the talent, but when you have both, well, you can just take off. So you run guided orgasm meditations. Have you ever faked one? Oh, um, I think probably when I was 17 or 18, I would say, of course I did, because when I was 17, I didn't know who I was. I didn't even know what they were. And, of course, like most 17-year-olds, I wanted to please the person I was with and but well, I just, I didn't even know how to do this, so I'll just fake it. But it's actually better not to. I think you can be allowed forgiveness for anything when you're 17. You have no idea who you are, where you're going. But now, I would never do that. Um, but I don't need to now because I know how the most, the sexiest organ is your mind. You know, orgasms start in your mind. Once you get that on board, you can have them, any type of orgasm, whenever you like. But it's, it's, oh, it's a really a mental thing. I just want to say I was so nervous about asking that question, but I made myself ask it anyway. So thank you for a great answer. Oh, you're welcome. Um, what's your biggest win that you think maybe you've had in your career? Just, you know, I've had so many. Being voted therapist of the year was amazing. Um, 
Uh, I'm Enough, my flagship program has been has won so many awards for best product. It won an award for best pharmaceutical, which was quite amazing because it isn't a pharmaceutical, but it really helps me with depression. So I think being recognized, but my biggest, actually the biggest thing, no, I know what it is. When people come to the street and say, you say, you changed my life. And some people write to me and say, you saved my life. Somebody said, you know, I was looking out of my window trying to work out if I jumped, would I actually be paralyzed or could I die because I wanted to die. And I don't know what happened, but I heard you speak on YouTube. And in three days, I never thought that again. And I'm in a different life now because I really bought into the I'm enough. And I say, and who would have thought those three words would have changed my life? So that's my biggest achievement by far, bigger than all the awards, having people say, you know, I signed up for I'm enough. I started to say it and it was a game changer. And I have my kids say it, and it's changed everything. So that's my biggest achievement, having people understand that everything begins with knowing you're enough. And what would you say has been your hardest moment in your career or maybe the, the biggest sort of fail? Well, the hardest moment is there's a couple of things. There's always going to be the haters. I mean, I luckily I don't have many, but I have a few, um, one in particular, and they love to come on and go, well, you, you're stupid and you know, you're not a doctor and who are you to tell people that just talking can make them better? They should all be on medication. So that's just a situation that comes with, I guess, having a big audience and then the other one, I mean, I mean, very lucky because I would say half the doctors I meet are so on board. We train a lot of doctors. Now they love our TT. We, we tend to have about 12 on every course I teach. But it's always having the others who go, no, depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain. But it isn't. There's no study in the world that can tell you that. It's not possible to treat, to treat someone, to, to read their and to look for this chemical imbalance. And that was made up by a drug company, even a doctor. A drug company created that belief. You've got a chemical imbalance, need medication for the rest of your life. But getting people to see that, you know, you don't have to be depressed. You haven't got bipolar. Half my clients aren't even depressed. They are so repressed. They haven't got a voice. And they're, they're, they're so suppressed, trying to be good or nice or kind. And recently I worked with someone who was, I said, I think you should stop being good. Why don't you become bad? I think that would be so good to Ann Summers and be naughty instead of good. Just, oh, my God, that was changed my life. I never knew I was trying so hard to be good. And I was trying to be a good mom, a good wife, a good parent, a good employee. And I suppose when I just went, fuck it, excuse my French, it was revolutionary. So I love that. So it's a challenge getting some people to see that, although that sounds so frivolous, I'm deadly serious, you know, stop being good all the time. Have fun. Be naughty. It's much more fun than always having to be good. What's the best advice you ever remember receiving? Oh, for my dad. My dad, who was an amazing head teacher, said, make every child, they walk up to you. Imagine they've got the words, please make me feel important, written on my head on their heads. So his advice was always make people think they matter. He would pick up every hitchhiker. He was such a kind man. If we were at a fair and someone was getting beaten up, he'd go in there and rescue people. He was a real rescuer. But his whole reason for living was make people feel they matter. So that was, he gave me that advice. And I think that's why I became a therapist. And what's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? The worst advice? Hmm, that's a hard one. I've probably got lots of bad advice. Don't draw attention. 
attention to yourself. I would say don't draw attention to yourself and don't make a fuss. Because, you know, if you want to survive an illness, you need to get difficult, cantankerous patient written on your notes. So my grandparents would say, don't make a fuss. Don't draw, ten- don't draw attention to yourself. And I say, make a fuss. Draw a lot of attention to yourself because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. <laughs> so three more, Marissa. Thank you so much for this. Um, is there one thing that you feel is particularly wrong with the world that you'd like to change? Oh, gosh, I think there's so many things wrong with the world. I think we're making every generation more and more depressed because I think people now get overexposed to fake images of perfection. I think the Internet shows everyone else looking perfect, and I think that's wrong because it's not real. I think it's such a shame that my daughter's generation, all they have Facebook friends, and, I mean, she has lots and lots of I, I meet kids who, they have 500 friends and no one to talk to. They, they don't even make phone calls. They text them and they don't even hear a voice anymore. And we've seen in COVID what's that like not to have it. So I think the world and its obsession with perfection, perfect models, perfect homes, perfect Insta pictures has made everyone feel inadequate and, by the way, not enough. And I think that's a real problem. And I think we keep replacing people with machines. Like, you know, now we have machines in the bank, machines, and we never have to talk to anyone anymore. And I think that's making people really, really unwell. And it's a terrible shame. If there's one person that you would stop everything for to watch them on a show like this, who would it be? Wow, that's um, maybe Anthony Hopkins. I really like him. I like his life story. I'd, I'd stop everything to listen to him because he's so wise and he's so clever and he's got that great mindset. You know, when he played Hannibal Lecter, he could see that in his imagination and then he could pull it off. And I believe if you can see it, you can achieve it. So somebody like him, someone who's come from a little Welsh village and is living the Hollywood life. And, you know, he went through alcoholism and a lot of demons but how did he do it? This podcast has got the word disruptive in it, the disruptive entrepreneur. So what does that word disruptive mean to you, Marissa? I love that word. I think you should disrupt. I think, I mean, I, I made a mission to disrupt this belief that therapy has to be long and painful before you can ever even hope to get better. In fact, the therapist said to me recently, don't you understand that therapy is a world of pain you have to try and crawl out of the same pain every day with little hope of help. And that was a therapist. I'm like, wow, glad I'm not your patient. So we need to disrupt. We need to disrupt education. The whole education system doesn't work. It should change. I love the fact that many schools are now doing meditation instead of, you know, having to go into detention. I think the whole prison system needs to be disrupted. I think so many systems need disrupting. And I think it's great to be. So that's what Steve Jobs did, didn't he? He said, the, the, the people, the, what was he called? I can't remember, but the square pegs and the round holes, the crazies, they, they do things because they think outside the box. So I believe in disrupting and I think um, we should do it more, not less. So we have four minutes left and I'm going to take one question. Uh, and this is from Sally, who's a student of yours, Marissa. And she said, uh, Marissa, what do you think about feminism? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I have to be very careful what I say here now. I think um, feminism is overdue. I, I mean, it's amazing to my daughter's generation that women weren't seen as equal and didn't have equal pay. And when I watch things like Life on Mars and some of the things they talk about, or even the Sweeney, you think, wow, is it really like that? 
So I'm, of course, I believe in feminism. I think we should all be feminists because it, feminism really means equality for everybody. And I think that's important. I think it's also a great shame that so many men seem to have lost their way because I work with many, many more what I call lost boys than lost girls, lost boys who've never had a father, never had praise. The missing bit of them is they've never had someone say, you're great, I'm proud of you, I love you, I'm so glad I have you. So I find that men are suffering much more in the world than women. The suicide rates for men are way higher than for women. So I absolutely believe in feminism. I think we should all be feminists, men and women. But I also, being a feminist, can say, honestly, I think men are having a harder time than women now. And that's been happening for a long time. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. Where can we follow you? What are your social media profiles? Is there any book or course that you um, particularly love to share? Well, um, I'm very lucky. I'm forever grateful I was called Marissa and not Janet because you can always find me. So marissapeer.com, that's my uh, website. And I give away tons of free stuff. We have audios on love blocks, health blocks, wealth blocks. They're all free. Don't ask for a card. But if you think you have any blocks, just go ahead and take as many as you like and give them to other people too. And then I have imenough.com if you want to feel enough. I'm on Instagram. I've got hundreds of free videos on YouTube. I've got quite a few books. I've got a new book coming out called Tell Yourself a Better Lie. Very excited about that. But my book, I'm Enough, is such a simple book, and that seems to change people's lives a lot. So I love that. So, And, and finally, if you want to train to be a great therapist that doesn't keep people coming for 10 years, go to rtt.com and you can find out how to do what I do. No background in therapy is required. Or you might want to find someone who does what I do to help you. Marissa, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for being so open. Uh, we've had so many great comments and um, really grateful. Well, I've enjoyed it too. It's been amazing. And thanks for asking me such interesting questions. I enjoyed answering them. <laughs> Thank you. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.